If you have your Bibles, would you join me in Exodus chapter 20? Every now and again, you may be engaged in a book that you are reading, and as you get to the last chapter of the book, though you are certainly interested in what that last chapter contains, you're kind of sad that the story is coming to a conclusion. This morning, we arrive at the last chapter, as it were, of the Ten Commandments, but I don't know that we're sad that the story is coming to an end, because if you are anything like me, you have woefully failed at the other nine commandments. And the one that we arrive at this morning seems to be somewhat anticlimactic, seems so benign, Something that is so natural to us that it does not seem like it can elevate to the level of the ten big ones, and yet we have it here before us in Exodus 20 and verse 17. You can even hear, as God communicates this law to Moses, how explicit he gets in articulating all that this law, this command, contains. In Exodus 20, I'll begin reading in verse 17, here's what the commandment contains, thou shalt not covet. Now, probably it could stop right there. But for individuals like us who need a little help, we get this, thy neighbor's house. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. God knows the heart of humankind so well that this law is articulated in explicit detail and knowing that we are always looking for loopholes, he concludes by saying, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. Now this commandment to me is different than the other commandments. The other commandments deal with actions This commandment deals with attitudes. The other commandments deal with deeds that we would carry out. And this command hits right home at where our desires are. This commandment addresses what happens in our hearts. And it makes it very clear that God forbids sin even where no one but he can see. This commandment tells me that this is not just ancient law for the nation of Israel, but that this law is moral and that it is spiritual because it goes right to our hearts. In many ways, as I study the scripture, covetousness is kind of the seed that produces all other sins. All the way back in the garden in Genesis when Adam and Eve sinned, they coveted to have the knowledge of God. They desired within them inordinately, carnally, to have something, the one thing that God disallowed in obedience to him. They coveted after it, and they capitulated in sin. Ultimately, an adulterer must first want someone who is not their spouse to commit the sin of adultery. A thief is envious of something before he steals to gain it. People who want to look good to others and covet the earned reputation of another respected individual will attack their character, will lie or slander them, and even lie about their own accomplishments to steal that. 
The Apostle Paul was writing in the New Testament, and and honestly, as I studied out this 10th commandment, it has amazed me how often this arises within Scripture. The Apostle Paul was writing to the believers at Colossae, good group of people, and he writes this in Colossians 3, 5, mortify, that means put to death, mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth, the old man. The old nature, the flesh, that which is your carnal nature, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, all of those are sexual sins. And yet lastly he says, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Covetousness then is even tied back to the commands where we are to make no graven image nor to have any other God before God. When we attach it to those lists of sin in Colossians 3, 5, we grasp that covetousness then is just another form of the same evil desire. Born of the inside, I desire some material thing that God does not want for me to have. And so it's the lowest form of idolatry. Nothing could be lower than giving my affection than worshiping something that is temporal or material and putting it in the place of God. Covetousness is idolatry and we should not do it. What in the world does it mean then to covet? I'll tell you, I assure you that you struggle with this sin. One author said, coveting is a consuming desire to possess something belonging to another. It's not simply wanting something we don't have. It's wanting something that someone else has. It has to do with wanting. Therefore, it is a sin of desire. Another said, it's an insatiable desire of getting the world by the world. Yet one who was a little more common or or, or recent said this it's an inordinate ungoverned selfish desire for something an ungoverned selfish desire for something now I want to interject here quickly because it is not wrong to have desires we have desires in fact in the new testament we know that Jesus Christ knew what it was to be hungry to desire food we know that, that he knew what it was to be thirsty. We saw that on the cross. He desired something to satiate his thirst. We know that Jesus suffered. In fact, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed aloud and he asked his father, if there was some other way, let that be, but your will be done. He knew what it was to ask God, is there some other way? He grasped what it was to desire. We know from the Bible that it is okay that children are a good desire. There are a number of Proverbs which indicate that it isn't a bad thing to plan or to work hard in hopes of improving our lives. The Apostle Paul even expresses that he desired to leave this present body and to be with Christ, which he deemed as far better. So not all desire is bad, but we should not covet. We should not desire or take pleasure in that which we do not have in the sense that it controls us or that which belongs to someone else. The New Testament idea is a passion for possessing, dominated by I have to have that. 
It's a consuming desire. It's highly competitive. It is an attitude. It arises within us. It's a kind of conspiracy that arises within our hearts, ultimately to commit evil. The Apostle Paul does something very interesting. In Romans chapter 7, he is giving voice to his internal struggle that all of us identify with. It's a fun passage to read. It's almost like a puzzle to put together. As he writes in Romans chapter 7, he is talking about the law. He is also communicating that when it came to the law, he was a Pharisee, which means he really endeavored to uphold all of the law, and largely he succeeded in it. He was incredibly zealous for God to the degree in his own testimony he persecuted the church. He was so careful and explicit in everything that he did to try to uphold the law, but the law pins him. Remember, the Ten Commandments are a mirror that we look into to see our own sin. The Bible says they are a school teacher that teaches us our need for a Savior. And the Apostle Paul does something very interesting in Romans chapter 7 and verse 7. Here's what he says. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, get this. I had not known sin but by the law. For I had not known lust except the law had said, thou shalt not covet. What he is telling us is intensely personal. He is saying, through the first part of my life, I was really good at upholding the law. You really couldn't pin me down on anything. I did not make graven images. I did not use the name of the Lord my God in vain. I did honor my parents on down through. And then he says this, but the one law that revealed to me my sinfulness, the one law that declared unto me that I was a sinner destined for the punishment of death and damnation and separation from God was that I did lust. And when the law said, thou shalt not covet, the law pinned me down. It is intriguing to me that of all the commands that Paul could have addressed, he said this one, the inward one, not the outward one, got me. So I can say to you what Jesus said to a crowd of people, beware of covetousness. It's interesting in the New Testament that Jesus is speaking in front of a crowd. And this takes a little work to get through, but I want you to hear what Jesus communicates. Why should I beware of covetousness? Well, I believe we can establish that covetousness leads to anxiety. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus is standing in a company of people. And one of the company said unto him in Luke 12, 13, Master... Speak to my brother that he divide the inheritance with me. Now in that moment, he does not say, please. In that moment, he does not say, I have a right to a portion of the inheritance. He just looks at Jesus and he says, you have the authority. You are a master teacher. You are a rabbi. Demand that my brother divide the inheritance with me. Jesus responds. In verse 14, he said unto him, man, who made me a judge or a divider over you? 
And he said unto them, now note the change. He said unto him, man, who has made me a judge or a divider over you? Now he picks up and he speaks to the company of people that are around. And he says unto them, take heed and beware of covetousness. For a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth. That's what Jesus said. Beware of covetousness. What is motivating this question is coveting something that his brother has. And so Jesus ties the principle. Your life does not consist of the material things that you possess. Be careful of being controlled by the desire to have things. Now Jesus, as he often does, will tie a story to a principle. We call those parables. After Jesus says, a man's life consisteth not of the material goods which he possesses, he tells the story about a rich man. A rich man who began to harvest in abundance, so abundantly that he tore down his old barns and he built new barns and he stuffed them full of his goods and he trusted in everything that he had amassed. And then Jesus in the story says in verse 20, But God said unto him, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. And this question rings even now. Then whose shall those things be which thou hast provided? So is he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Now, I'm not trying to make a study of Luke chapter 12, but I want to say to you one of the great dangers of coveting is that we become very self oriented. One of the dangers of coveting is that we only see ourselves. We only see our things. We only see what we want. We fail to recognize our neighbor. We lose sight of the fact that at any moment we could be standing before God answering for this life. We're consumed with it and when we are, we find that we live anxiously. Now again, let me just stay in Luke chapter 12. Jesus has answered the man and, and now he looks at the people and says, beware of covetousness. He has shared with them the parable of the rich fool. And now he's walking away with his disciples. And he will now teach his disciples very explicitly what he was trying to communicate to the crowd. And what he sowed in a parable. He says this to them. And he said unto his disciples, therefore I say unto you, take no thought for your life. What ye shall eat, neither for the body what ye shall put on. What? Jesus is now saying, now I spoke that to the masses, but you my near followers, here's what I'm trying to teach you. Don't be dominated by what you're going to put on or what you're going to eat next. Ultimately, he says, Trust in me and stop being controlled by a desire for material possessions. Now, a passage of scripture that you're probably familiar with, it's been turned into song, you probably know it. Jesus says to his disciples, consider the lilies, how they grow. They toil not, they spin not, and yet I say unto you that Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. If then God so clothed the grass, which is today in the field and tomorrow is cast into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O ye of little faith? Now, we could have made an entire message of Luke chapter 12, but let me just end it by saying this. Covetousness ultimately is faithlessness. 
Because as Jesus concludes his teaching with his disciples, after saying, beware of covetousness, because your life is more than the material possessions that you have, your life consists of that which you amass in heaven and will ultimately answer to God for. Stop being controlled by what comes next and how much you have and what you can amass. O faithless generation, ye of little faith, covetousness ultimately is faithlessness. You see, when we're covetous, we are pursuing our kingdom and not God's kingdom. We are pursuing our stuff and not the stuff that glorifies and honors him. So the real challenge of the Christian life is not worrying about how to get what someone else has. Ultimately, the real challenge of the Christian life is how to trust God more. Covetousness leads to anxiety. Faith in God defeats that. That's why the Apostle Paul wrote in Philippians, be careful for nothing. Don't be filled with care for any one thing. But pray to God, make your requests known to God for it, and the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will be given to you. All of us want peace. There is a real preponderance to discuss mental health, and not often enough do we consider that we bring some of this anxiety upon ourselves by desiring to have things that God does not intend for us to have. But very truly, Covetousness is based on faithlessness and leads to anxiety. Not only that, covetousness defeats generosity. I knew you were going to talk about offerings at some point. Covetousness defeats generosity. When I desire to amass, I despise to give away. And and you can see this very naturally in the behavior of children. I don't want to give something that I have attained. In fact, what you have is mine. Isn't that one of the first words that children learn? Mine. That's mine. No, it's not. Well, it is now. And if you don't give it to me, I will ruin your lunch because I want it. It defeats generosity. Now, the Apostle Paul was writing to the believers in Corinth. And he is talking to them about preparing to take up an offering. And so he says, I want to write ahead of time. I want you to plan ahead of time. I want you to settle in your heart between you and God, purpose in your heart, what does God want you to give? And here's his reasoning, 2 Corinthians 9, 5. Therefore, I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren that they would go before unto you and make up beforehand your bounty whereof ye had notice before that the same might be ready, get this, as a matter of bounty and not as of covetousness. I wanted you to give aware of your bounty and I did not want you to give dominated by covetousness. It defeats ultimately the blessing of God on my life because I am controlled by what I have and covetousness thinks of generosity as a threat to the accumulation of things which are so strongly desired. Covetousness leads to anxiety. It defeats generosity and ultimately it leads to destruction. Of all the Bible stories about coveting, one of the clearest and one of my favorite to read is that of Ahab who desired Naboth's vineyards. Now, 
If you ever wanted to meet a giant man baby in all the Bible, it is Ahab. And if you think that man babies are relegated to the Old Testament, au contraire, there are a lot of petulant adults that exist in this world. That if they don't get their way, they can still grit their teeth and clench their fists and stomp their feet. Now you say, well, I don't see adults stomp their feet. It's in here. Remember the old adage, I know you're sitting on the outside, but you're standing on the inside. There's a lot of adults who still clench their fists and stomp their feet and scream aloud, and Ahab was one of them. Here's the story from 1 Kings 21. And it came to pass after these things. Don't worry about what those things were. Here, let's pick the story up. That Naboth, the Jezreelite, had a vineyard which was in Jezreel, hard by the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. So Ahab has a next door neighbor and right up against his property line is Naboth and Naboth has a vineyard and it's a nice vineyard. And Ahab spake unto Naboth saying, give me thy vineyard that I may have it for a garden of herbs because it's near unto my house. Now, he's not looking to rip him off. Here's what he says. I will give thee for it a better vineyard, or if it seem good to thee, I will give thee the worth of it in money. It's a fair deal, right? Your vineyard is next to my house. I want your vineyard. I want to plant a garden of herbs there. I I want my chef to be able to prepare here in the palace the herbs that he gets from your garden. That's very fertile land. It makes sense. It's right next to my house. I'll give you a better vineyard than that. If you don't want a better vineyard, I will give you money for it. And Naboth says to him, the Lord forbid it me that I should give thee the inheritance of my fathers unto thee. And Ahab came into his house heavy and displeased. Because of the word which Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him, for he had said, I will not give thee the inheritance of my fathers. And he laid him down upon his bed and turned away his face and would eat no bread. Giant man baby. This is a king who went and got in his bed, laid on his side, stared at the wall and refused to eat. And servants came in and they brought him piping hot bread and other things that they ate in the Old Testament. I don't know what it was. And they said, oh, king, we know that you're hungry. Would you eat? No. Why is the king so sad? Well, somebody dared to tell the king no. Somebody dared to tell Ahab that he couldn't have what he wanted. And this time, he didn't even try to steal it. He tried to do the right thing. And he's not getting his way. And it's interesting to me to find in the Old Testament why Naboth told Ahab no. You see, Naboth didn't just tell Ahab no because he really liked his vineyard. The fact is, when he said, the Lord forbid that I sell you this, he actually meant, the Lord forbids it. I cannot sell you this. I read in the law in Numbers 36, 7 this. So shall not the inheritance of the children of Israel remove from tribe to tribe. For every one of the children of Israel shall keep himself to the inheritance of the tribe of his fathers. Which meant, according to Mosaic law, Naboth really could not sell that vineyard to Ahab. Which communicates to me, Naboth served God more than he did money, and Ahab served money more than he did God. One is dominated by covetousness, another is dominated by honoring God and contentment. But this does not end well. 
Because Jezebel, who's not a good lady, comes to her husband Ahab and says, Honey, what's wrong? Naboth won't give me his vineyard. I just wanted his vineyard. What did you want it for, babe? I was just going to put a garden of herbs. I, I, just, I just wanted herbs. It's right next door. It only makes sense. Jezebel says to him, I'll get your garden for you. She hires liars, in effect, to come out and lie about Naboth falsely. And to punish Naboth for lying or, or for his criminal act, which was all concocted and made up, they kill Naboth. And Jezebel walks back into his bedroom where apparently he's still laying on the bed refusing to eat, staring at the wall. And she says to him, hey, Naboth is dead. You can go get your vineyard, king. And I love this. In 1 Kings 21, 16, and it came to pass, when Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, that Ahab arose up to go down to the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite to take possession of it. It's the only thing that could get him out of bed. Well, I can get up now. Thank you, honey, for killing that man so I could get his vineyard. This is like the Old Testament story of Old Testament stories. Now, one of my favorite parts of this is Ahab hates Elijah the Tishbite. Elijah's God's man. Elijah, everywhere he goes, is a problem for people who are corrupt and sinful and despise God. And the Lord in heaven, who's got a better communication system than even Jezebel walking up to Ahab's bedroom to tell him, Naboth's dead, you can have the vineyard. God comes to Elijah and notice this. In verse 17, and the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, which is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, whither he has gone down to possess it. So here's what you have to say to him when you get there, Elijah. When you arrive there in the vineyard, here's what you shall say to him. Verse 19, thus saith the Lord, hast thou killed and also taken possession. And thou shalt speak unto him saying thus saith the Lord. In the place where dogs lick the blood of Naboth. Shall dogs lick thy blood even thine. I mean dogs licking blood is Old Testament. Death and destruction it's as good as it gets. I know that Ahab despised Elijah. And when Elijah the Tishbite walked into the vineyard of Naboth and there stood this man baby dominated by covetousness, corrupt, vile, and wicked Ahab surveying it with his people going, over here we'll have sage, here we'll put some thyme and rosemary. That's all that I know. I know no other herbs. In the gate walks Elijah the Tishbite, and I promise you, as Ahab saw him, his shoulders dropped. I can't have anything nice. What? You're here to take the vineyard from me because we killed a guy to get it? Is that the deal? And Elijah says to him, yeah, that's the deal. And where the dogs lick the blood of Naboth, so will they lick your blood and Jezebel's blood. And we don't have time, though. It's much better than Luke 12. It happens. 
Because covetousness always leads to destruction. Ahab's downfall started with being discontented. Started with coveting that which belonged to somebody else. So much of our frustration in life comes from wanting things that God has not given us. Not only that, we could read of Achan. When the walls of Jericho fell and God said to the children of Israel, don't take any spoil from Jericho. It's not for you to have. Here's what we read of Achan, who is now confessing his sin to Joshua. Achan answered Joshua and said, Indeed, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and thus and thus have I done, when I saw among the spoils a goodly Babylonian garment, and two hundred shekels of silver, and a wedge of gold of fifty shekels weight. Then I coveted them, and took them. And men are killed when they go up to fight against Ai because Achan coveted. Covetousness always leads to destruction. Covetousness ultimately kept the the rich young ruler from making it to heaven. The Bible tells us in Mark 10 that Jesus is walking and a rich young ruler runs up to him and kneels to him and asks him, Good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? This is a good man. He desires to see Jesus. He runs to him. He's humble in the presence of Jesus. He kneels before him. He doesn't ask Jesus for money or power. He asks him, what do I have to do to get eternal life? Jesus responds in Mark 10, 19, thou knowest the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not kill. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Defraud not. Honor thy father and mother. And he answered and said unto him, Master, All these things have I observed from my youth. These six, I've nailed it. I've gotten every one of these. So I get eternal life, right? And Jesus goes right to the heart of this man. He knows his fatal flaw. Jesus says to him in verse 21, Then Jesus, beholding him, loved him and said unto him, One thing thou lackest, go thy way, Sell whatsoever thou hast and give to the poor and thou shalt have treasure in heaven and come, take up the cross and follow me. And the Bible very sadly says, and he was sad at that saying and went away grieved for he had great possessions. He was so controlled by the desire for material possessions that he missed out on eternal life. You can be good at all of the other commandments. You can even restrain from acting out in sin. But our hearts reveal who we truly are. Covetousness always leads to destruction. The the antidote to covetousness is contentment. And that is so challenging. Even Paul knew that contentment was a pursuit. It is a learned discipline. He says not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. What Paul is communicating there is contentment is not circumstantial. It does not depend on our situation in life. Now I know as you are sitting here listening to this theological oration, you are thinking I could never be happier than I am in this moment. That was a joke because there's no way this is A, a theological oration, nor could you not be happier than you are now. How many of you love vacation? One or two or ten, all of us. 
pretty content on vacation. I can find moments of contentment when my circumstances agree with me. But what the scripture says is this, contentment, true contentment is not dictated by circumstances. Here's what Hebrews 13, 5 says, let your conversation be without covetousness. Let your lifestyle, let your behavior be without any covetousness and be content with such things as ye have. For he hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. We know that, right? We say that. The Bible says, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. But do you comprehend that it is in the explicit context of stop being covetous, Be content with what you have, even if the only thing you have in this world is that Jesus has said he will never leave you nor forsake you. That's enough. That's enough. But we sure don't live that way. God is all we need, therefore he is all that we ought to desire. Coming to Jesus Christ is not gaining a better way of getting things. The fact is, he is the only thing that we need. One writer said, it is not poverty or wealth that leads us to contentment and trust in the Lord, but the confidence that if God provided so richly for our salvation, by redeeming and calling and adopting and justifying, and by sending his spirit to cause us to grow up in Christ's likeness, then surely we can count on him for the less essential matters of daily existence. He is all you need. You say, well, pastor, I know this. This is a great message for the one percenters. They are so controlled by possessions. I have found by personal experience that some of the most covetous people on earth are poor people who want, want, want what they do not have. And ultimately, I can plainly say to you, not for Christians. Because we have Christ, we have all that we need, we should not be controlled by any inordinate affection. Let me say this in closing. If the Apostle Paul was pinned by the sin of covetousness, and the rich young ruler had them all figured out except this one, nobody's off the hook. This is where sin comes from. And ultimately, this command declares unto us our desperate need for a Savior to be redeemed, to be forgiven, to be cleansed. And God, in His great mercy, sent His only begotten Son, Jesus, who was born sinless and never committed sin, willingly laid down His life for us so that He could save us from the punishment of death which we have earned by our sin of covetousness. Trust in Jesus. Would you bow your heads please just for a moment? Thanks for listening this week to the Graceway Baptist Church podcast. For more information about our church and our ministries, head on over to our website at gracewaycharlotte.org. We are a church located in South Charlotte. We are growing and our ministries are doing big things for Christ. If you're looking for a way to get plugged into what we're doing, email us at info at gracewaycharlotte.org. Also, stay in the loop with everything happening by following us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle is Graceway Charlotte. Thanks again for listening to the Graceway Charlotte podcast. We'll see you next week.